This is The Guardian. Hey Dad, kriege ich dein Auto? Na klar. Nice. Kriege ich auch was von deinen McNuggets? Denk dich mal dran. Hol auch du dir nur für dich die Chicken McNuggets. Oder für kurze Zeit die feurigen Spicy Chicken McNuggets. My Nuggets, my rules. Solange der Vorrat reicht und nur in teilnehmenden Restaurants bei McDonalds. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. West Ham win the Europa Conference League. Declan Rice, the third player to lift a trophy for the Hammers after Bobby Moore and Billy Bonds. The first major trophy of David Moyes' career after more than a thousand games and a fairy tale moment for Jared Bowen. If the game's about winning things, Paqueta justifies his £50 million price tag with one pass. It wasn't a great game and it was marred by idiots in the West Ham end throwing bottles and drawing blood from Biragi, who went on to give away the penalty and play Bowen onside. And so it's up to Inter to win a trophy from the three Italian finals in Europe this season should be straightforward. Also today, Saudi Arabia start throwing insane money at players. They've just bought all of golf. Could the same happen to football? Messi turned them down for Miami. Sadly, not in time for Phil Neville to teach him how to do a step over properly. We'll do that. Another Wolf Blockbuster video update. Your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Filippo Claire, bonjour, ça va? Ça va bien, bonjour, Max. Bonjour. Hello, Nicky Bandini. Bonjour. And hello, Barry Glendenning. Bonjour. <laughs> Let's start then uh, with West Ham's uh, win over Fiorentina in the Europa Conference League. Uh, David Moyes dancing, a last-minute winner. Mike says, as a West Ham supporter who's never seen us win anything, in my 40 years on this planet, can I just say that I wish everyone a moment watching their team like I've just felt tonight. I didn't know football could make you feel this happy, even though I've watched it my whole life. And, Baz, for fans of clubs who don't win things, like West Ham yesterday, what a moment. Yeah, and most teams don't win things with any sort of regularity, and some teams never win anything at all. So, if you're a West Ham fan this is huge and I think there are some teams it's easy not to be happy for if you're a neutral and they're in a the final and they do well and there are others who it's very easy to be pleased for and and I was really pleased for West Ham Um they they very much fall into the camp I think of of uh, being a team that it's it's easy to be really pleased with them, especially when you see how much winning that tournament meant to the players, meant to all the staff, meant to the fans. Pity there couldn't have been more of them there in a, a bigger stadium, but that's the way the cookie, the UEFA cookie crumbles, I suppose. It wasn't a particularly good game, but it was an exciting cup final. I thought two teams with different styles. Fiorentina were played the better football of that there's no doubt but West Ham got more goals than they did and uh, their long ball tactics work long ball counter-attacking defensive uh, it got them over the line and that's all that matters and uh, just to, to see how much it meant to everyone involved you know some teams uh, and indeed some podcasts look down their noses at the Europa Conference League and maybe consider it beneath them but uh, this clearly wasn't the case here. And as you say, Baz, you know, in a game lacking in quality, Nicky, that pass from Paquetar was 
not the only moment of quality, but pretty much. I mean, it was absolutely perfectly weighted, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was a lovely pass. The, 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 the last two goals were both brilliant. I mean, the penalty was was fine. It was a penalty. I think at first glance, it's like, oh, that's a great penalty. You saw the replay, you're like, well, it's actually, the keeper just goes the wrong way. It's kind of near the middle, but well, that's still fine. It's, it's a penalty that goes in. But the but the other two goals were both great. Um, and I I thought that we talked about this last night on on Stan and Max that sort of moment for Jared Bowen running through and 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 running onto it. Like I think that's sort of where I I really have sat ever since watching Roma do it last year with the Conference League, like all of this sort of football debate we have nowadays feels like it's always sort of hung on who's the goat, who's the best ever, what's the, you know, the number one thing and the only shiniest thing. Jared Bowen's going to remember running through onto that pass for the rest of his life, like forever, forever, forever. That's going to be a thing that he remembers going and scoring that goal. And I'm sure most of the West Ham fans are going to, are going to have that experience as well. Yeah. I, I suppose it sort of even comes to when, you, amongst others, have been asking me recently, like, why why do Roma fans love Mourinho so much? Because that was Roma's moment last season. I think maybe West Ham fans can understand that a bit better now, like how you end up with Jose being idolised, because like, he brought them that moment that West Ham are having now. And I, I, I love this competition. I, I think it's been it's been a good thing that UEFA did, which we don't get to say all that often. So, you know, I'm glad it exists. And and yes, Paquetá, who, as you say, um, Cost a whopping fifty million euros and oh, fifty million pounds was it euros? I'm not sure. Fifty million pounds, I think. But yeah, pounds perhaps hasn't justified that most of the way. But again, an assist in a cup final and a really good assist. It was a lovely goal. Might just weigh it all up. And actually, you make a really good point about you know this constant competition. Already, there's some debate swirling around. Have West Ham had a better season than Arsenal? Like, who cares? Why would a West Ham fan be like considering any of that now? On that goal, um, obviously we we didn't have the. Uh, Pete Mullenstein, who's a brilliant commentator, was doing the international comms, but but um, apparently on BT they they used the phrase "it's up for grabs now." Boomstruck says, "Should iconic commentary such as it's up for grabs now have listed status to prevent them being used, reused?" A bit like you know, there are some people on the pitch. I mean, it's quite hard to sort of contrive. There are some people on the pitch. They think it's all over. You'd be lucky if that all happened, uh, wouldn't you? And Jack says on Jared uh, Bowen's goal, has a man ever been held in higher regard by his father-in-law than Jared Bowen because he is dating the daughter? of Danny Dyer, who is, you know, the ultimate West Ham fan, who is utterly delighted. Um, and, and Scott, on that goal, actually, I don't know what you think about this, Nicky. Why didn't the Fiorentina defenders take the red and swipe Bowen's legs? I mean, maybe he was too far away. I was wondering, in that moment, do you think, actually, this is this would be a really good red card? Yeah, it was, it was really funny, actually, because this became like a, a bit of a narrative in the British press beforehand that made me roll my eyes a little bit, because Vincenzo Italiano was asked in a press conference about... Um, about how to sort of deal with West Ham on the counter. So he said a few things, but amongst them, he said, you know, sometimes you've got to make those tactical fouls, which then became in every English newspaper, Fiorentina coach plans this malicious, nefarious strategy of doing tactical fouls. Smart teams make tactical fouls when when they're sort of trying to break up counterattacks. So he wasn't really saying anything crazy. And you're right, in that moment, um, I guess Fiorentina were, 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 were desperate for one. But but as I said to you um, on, on the broadcast last night, I, I do think... I mean, this isn't to diminish the goal because, again, I, I think West Ham were were sort of brilliantly ruthless when they needed to be, and it was a lovely goal. But I, I do think there was just that moment watching Biragi step up that tiny bit late. The rest of the defence steps out to try and get him offside, and Biragi doesn't. And I thought to myself, Fiorentina played sixty games this year, which is a, a, only three more than West Ham, but they did play one on Sun on Saturday. Sorry, in in Serie A, where West Ham were off in Algarve, and I. To me, it was a moment of tiredness, and maybe that's also why he doesn't get fouled because the, there's just a moment of tiredness from a 
uh, a team that's played 60 games, a defender who's played 51 games a season, a team that didn't get a week of sort of extra preparation in, in the Algarve. And and that's, again, not trying to at all diminish the West Ham moment. I'm only answering it because you asked me the question. But I do think that that lack of a, of a foul or a moment of cynicism or whatever it would have taken to break that up is partly just because everyone was bloody knackered. Philippe, how... How big? I mean, this is a fatuous question. How big is this for West Ham? Right, they are obviously the best resource team in the competition. Lots of people were pointing this out. I don't remember anyone being that cynical about Roma's win last season. They're one of the biggest sides in the Conference League last year. It's amazing for the players and for the fans, and actually for David Moyes, right? Because he's had over a thousand games, and the first chance he gets to dance, as Andrew says, like David Pleat, just down the pitch, like <laughs> someone someone who literally doesn't know how to do this kind of celebrating. Yeah, no, it, it, it is absolutely it's absolutely huge. And when you think, you know, the two of the trophies, so it's the uh, European Cup, Winners' Cup, and the FA Cup, the, the Brooking Cup. Uh, in, and in a way, I think it, it, as a kind of trilogy, it kind of fits quite nicely together because they are not, uh, they won the FA Cup when nobody was expecting them to win the trophy. And perhaps of all the trophies, that's uh, in, in relative terms the biggest because the European Cup Winners' Cup, which, by the way, is probably the um, the competition that this conference league is the closest to, which is why I like it. It really has a flavour of the old Cup Winners' Cup where there are teams that you're not really expecting to be there. Where you look at the teams that West Ham has had to play since they started uh, this incredible <laughs> journey through Europe. Yeah, it's not a classic interrailing trip. They, they went, they went everywhere. I mean, and they went to strange places, and uh, which is what it should be, and which is why, by the way, you know, Barry, you're saying about the the size of the of the of the of the stadium. I thought, in a way, that added to the uh, occasion for me because it was so clear that the players, and actually, Alphonse Areola was talking to the French television afterwards, and he said, "I've never, never, ever." Uh, lived anything like this. And he said, you cannot understand what it was like to have this kind of support. You you just can't understand. And this is a player who's won a few things, who's played with a few teams. And he said, no, this was special because of the stadium, uh, because it was so close. You were really, you really felt the fact that there were all these West Ham fans. Apparently, I mean, it's 20,000 capacity. Uh, there were supposed to be how many? 4,000? Apparently, it was about double that. They were everywhere even though there were still 300 seats free in the Fiorentina enclosure, which is very strange. But in a way, I think it added to that and it will add to the mystique of it. I think with the experience last night, and um, we, we all feel actually very happy for them, apart from the cretins, of course. We feel very happy for them because also we feel that they, what they have lived yesterday, they probably felt happier than the fans of the winning team in the Champions League will feel, if you see what I mean. I mean, maybe not Inter fans, but Inter fans have gone through this. They've won a few things. For West Ham, it's just an absolute, uh, what's the word for apogee? It's a, it's a climax um, in the, yes, of, um, and, 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 and by the way, also people who say, well, it's a Mickey Mouse competition because look at it, they were 14th in the league and they only saved themselves very late. And well, they are not a 14th team in the league kind of team. Uh, they finished seventh and fifth in the two seasons before that. They're actually, if you look at who they've got and who they left on the bench, it's a very serious squad that David Moyes has got. So I don't think it diminishes the value of the competition. I think it is, honestly, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy for them and I'm very jealous in, in certain ways, but jealous in, a, in the nicest possible way. And I'm really delighted for David Moyes, by the way. Absolutely. And I think everybody will be. Going back to, to his pleasy dance down the touchline, 
in his post-match press conference, he said he wanted to go full Marino and do a knee slide. Uh, and he actually <laughs> said full Marino. <laughs> but his his knees aren't up to it, and he thought the grass was too dry, and he was worried he'd do himself an injury. <laughs> That's right. Ian says, uh, how pleased is Barry to see a proud Irishman captaining the Hammers to a European trophy? I mean, it, it's the... The perfect way for Declan Rice to say goodbye, isn't it, Baz? Yeah, uh, I bear Declan Rice no ill will whatsoever. He seems like an absolutely smashing fella, just a lovely, lovely bloke. In his pitch side interview, I think the first people he thanked were, or he made sure got credit, were the backroom staff, you know, chefs and physios and all those people who, who... prepare the players to be as ready as they can be for competitions. He will probably leave, almost certainly leave now. I don't think any West Ham... And he will leave an absolute club legend and a hero and there will be no animosity borne towards him by any West Ham fans. It, it is just quite slightly amusing that, you know, he, he he's proudly West Ham and was proudly Irish and he will, he will do anything for those teams... Apart from stay with them, <laughs> I mean that is the nature. That is, that is the nature of these things. Stop but no, he, he, I, yeah. I, I obviously don't blame him for wanting to better himself, playing the Champions League and whatnot. And and he's just such a nice guy. It, it just seems like a really, really, really nice guy. Stop Fiorentina, Nicky. They did so well to equalise so quickly, and then they just had that. They had that one big chance. The centre forward Cabral laid it off really nicely, and uh, I can't remember who the midfielder just put it just Mandragora. wide. So that was, a, yeah, such a massive moment for them looking back at this game. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it was, it was a really interesting uh, game in that both teams, to some extent, um, played to to type. Um, West Ham did sort of um, draw Fiorentina onto them. They let Fiorentina have the ball. Fiorentina were happiest with the ball after a uh, you know a, a couple of minutes of slightly chaotic start. It, it settled into a a pattern and and I think that you could certainly sort of make a case of oh, Fiorentina had more of the ball and 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 they had opportunities to win the game right after as you said after Bonaventura um scores a wonderful goal and Bonaventura deserves a whole podcast to himself because he's had a, a a journey and a career and and I was so happy for him when he got that goal and and I think of, of the people I felt sad for with Fiorentina not winning he was right near the top of the list but um but the um the truth is the Fiorentina didn't create that many great chances. They did have that one, exactly as you said, at, at, at one all. They in the first half, I think what would really sort of have surprised me about them is they just didn't create any shooting opportunities. You know, they'd scored by far the most goals in the Europe Conference League this season, and part of it is just because they'd taken by a long way the most shots. And I think they were sort of a team that's been willing to be speculative with their shooting in, in this competition, be willing to just take chances, almost sort of like we'll get the goals by weight of numbers, because frankly, Jovic and Cabral, both of them and not the most reliable finishers. I haven't been at all since they've been at Fiorentina. Um, so I, I think they were sort of, perhaps uh, that was the area they failed themselves most in, was just not sort of forcing it, not saying, look, let's just take some chances and and, and try and get something sooner. Because yes, as the second half went on, it felt more and more like they were playing the better, but then it only took that 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 one moment of, of lacking in concentration, playing with that high line to get completely undone at the end. Coming to this final, I mean, all the papers were full of praise for Vincenzo Italiano and saying what an absolutely amazing work he'd done. 
uh, talking about what he'd done with Aspasia, but also doing what he'd done with Fiorentina, two cup finals and so forth. So what's going to happen to him? Or And, and does what happened in Prague have any influence on on perhaps the way he's seen back at home? And, you know, people talk about Napoli taking him and replacing Spalletti with him. Is that still going to happen? Or is it... Is his credit still sky high? Yeah, I, I think I don't think this, I don't think losing a final um, is your credit. It's such a boring thing to talk about, but like it is sort of still worth reminding ourselves. And this is the question that everyone's going to sort of be saying about the Conference League and was sort of raised already. It is still true that Fiorentina's budget is a lot smaller than West Ham's, like less than half. So it, it isn't necessarily expected that you go into this final and win it. And it's, it's not sort of again trying to sort of make. Um, an excuse for them. They, they wanted to win this final. They felt they could have won this final. Italiano afterwards, I think, very much spoke as a man who thought they should have won this final. But I don't think anyone's looking at him going, oh, it's disgraceful that you lose to West Ham. I don't think that's 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 not the reality of it. And and I think that he fits the identikit that would sort of work for Napoli. He plays 4-3-3, which is the first thing, because De Laurentiis has said he's got a list of 10 managers or 10 or so managers. And, and they've you know, one of the big criteria is they've got to play 4-3-3. But I think he also would be someone who you could sort of sell to your fans as after winning the title, here's a new identity. Look, this is the young up and coming Italian manager. He has before this season climbed the ladder literally every year of his career, right? First season, he had a, a tough start in Serie D, but the next season he won a Serie D playoff. The next season he got Trapani promoted from Serie G. The next season he got Spezia promoted from Serie B. The next season he kept Spezia and Serie A. Then he went to Fiorentina, improved their points tally by 22 points. Then he took them to two cup finals. Every single season, he's improved. Like where he so next season, happening. Napoli for the Champions League. Right? That, that's, 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 <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but I, I definitely don't think this hurts him. I do need to mention the fans uh, who threw those bottles on the pitch, um, drawing blood from from Baragi. Um, West Ham players went over and said, "Please, what the you know? What are you doing?" Because, like you tweeted, Nikki, like they worked so hard to get there. Why would you? I mean, it's you know, some fans are morons. We know that, don't we? Um, UEFA made an announcement. West Ham said the fans' actions inside the Fortuna Arena do not in any way represent the values of our football club and the overwhelming majority of our supporters. In line with our zero-tolerance approach, anyone identified will have their details passed to the police and will be given an indefinite ban and therefore be unable to enter the London Stadium and travel with the club. Also worth noting that Czech police detained 16, 16 suspects after a group of black-clad Fiorentina fans attacked West Ham supporters in a bar in central Prague on Wednesday. Uh, before the game, um, a video on Twitter showed fans setting off flares and throwing tables at the bar uh, near the old town square. A police officer was also attacked. Uh, police said it was an isolated incident. Fans had minor injuries of cuts on their hands. I don't, I don't know if we need to have a long discussion about it. You know, some people are morons. There is something I did want to add, which was we we had a um, the Sydney supporters hammers. Sydney hammers filled this pub. At like, you know, the kickoff was 5am, but they were there from way before. And we sort of showed footage of them, you know, when the goals went in. And when they won, there were sort of grown men crying. And it's just something, it's just sort of something I'd noticed. And half our audience aren't in the UK. And I think when I was in the UK, you sort of look at fans overseas and you don't really treat them as real supporters. You know, oh, it's nice you support Liverpool or you support West Ham or whoever. But... It is just worth remembering that, you know, for the Australian listeners or the ones in America or wherever you are, you know, to be committed to watch every West Ham game is hard enough when it's on a normal time of day to do it in the middle of the night all the time. <laughs> like this, like, like it, it felt the same to them. Right. And I just I don't know. It was just an observation that I've sort of 
it has dawned on me since I got here that, you know, when sometimes we get annoyed with, you know, tourists coming to football grounds, but that might be their one chance to go to the London Stadium or White Hart Lane or the Emirates or whatever. And it costs them a lot of money to get there when they do. And they put in their time and their commitment to, uh, to you know, so this trophy means a lot to people, West Ham fans all over the world. I just, it was an observation. So years ago, I used to drink in this pub in Dublin called the International Bar. And I think it was the first Monday or something of every month, the Dublin branch of the West Ham Supporters Club used to have their meeting there, just a piss up, basically. And I was always agog at how many of them there were. And I wondered, like, what, how or why do these guys support West Ham? And then on another occasion, I was getting a boat across to, to Blighty and Leicester were playing a midweek, uh, I think it was a League Cup final replay against somebody, would have been Martin O'Neill's Leicester. And the boat was chock-a-block full of Irish Leicester City fans. And like whatever about West Ham, I was like, how the hell do so many people in Ireland support Leicester City? <laughs> so, you know, it, it is weird how these things work out. And, and I know you, you sort of said you don't want to like dwell on the incident. And I understand like not wanting to sort of like go on about saying that like is, 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 you know, is in the end not that many people. But I, I think there's a, a point no, 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 of course. about sort of UEFA and how you manage a game like this. Because the fact is that there were cups thrown at a corner several minutes before the incident in which Beragi gets his gets his head cut open. And there didn't seem to be any sort of real sort of strategy for stopping it. And, you know, beyond the fact that the West Ham players did go over and, and say something, would it have stopped? Would it have, have, have calmed down? And, you know, adding that on to the fact that at the end of the game, there were definitely some fans who just got onto the pitch and, and weren't even sort of ushered off. There was a point when Jared Byrne was doing his interview and, and he sort of physically ends up shoving a, a, a fan away from him who's sort of trying to... A very cockney man. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, you know, the, the idiots being idiots of football games, obviously, like, it's it's just a cretinous way to behave, right? That's, that's you know, Biragi is, is he's just a bloke, you know, he's a bloke who's doing his job and you should not have things thrown at you and have your head cut open doing your job, Right. But UEFA, as a body, have to take responsibility for not being able to to look after the security at, at an at a tournament like this and in a cup final. And I think that's that's sort of where you have to look for someone to take some extra responsibility. If if somebody really wants to throw a cup or a lighter or a coin or a bottle, there's not a huge amount you can do to stop them, is there? But there was there was several cups thrown beforehand, and it didn't stop Barry. It wasn't like it was one person. That wasn't one person through one. Yeah, but thing. but like, how how do you stop it? If someone is hell bent on hurling stop missiles the game. onto you the stop pitch the game. from a crowd, you stop the game and you and you make sure that security have dealt with the people who did it, and you say we're not restarting again. And if it happens again, we'll stop the game completely. There has been as well on some some grounds in in Liga uh, because unfortunately the uh, throwing of missiles is a recurrent theme of of many games uh, where they've actually installed nets um, around um, uh, you know the, uh, the 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 corner kick. Uh, area so that the, the bottles and the glasses would uh, end up, you know, in in the net. This kind of this fishing nets. Uh, I'm not sure that the lighter, because I think it would, what what injured him was not um, a, a glass. It was uh, it looked like a metal object, um, which was held by the way by a UEFA delegate. Someone said a vape pen. I don't know if that's true, but it could have been from what it looked like. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, yes. What what can you do? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, what can you add to that? Uh, it would be interesting to see the, what will be the punishment meted out to, to West Ham and to compare it to the punishment meted out for other offences by UEFA, that's all. As a smoker, I 
whenever I see a lighter thrown on the pitch, I always think, whoever threw that, they'll regret that later. They'll need that. They'll go, oh, I really wish I hadn't thrown away my lighter. Anyway, that'll do for part one. Part two, we'll begin with uh, Lionel Messi going to MLS. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. We have a book out. You can pre-order it now. Uh, features contributions from all your favourite Football Weekly regulars, including Johnny Lou's You Are the Ref, Ben Fisher's Guide to Car Parks, an exclusive David Squires cartoon, which is brilliant, as you'd expect it would be. Um, if you pre-order on the Guardian Bookshop, you'll get 20% off. It is out on the 28th of September. Uh, link in the description of this podcast and all over Twitter. Let's talk about Lionel Messi going to Inter Miami. Alex says, how gutted are you that Phil Neville will not be managing Leo Messi? What I would have given for an all or nothing Inter Miami documentary where we got to see Phil telling Messi how to play football. And Patrick says, not a question, but I'm a DC United fan who is thrilled to have Messi in MLS. League is fun to watch without him. So having him is gravy. Euro League snobs can jump in a lake, he says. Uh, Messi says, I'm going to join Inter Miami. The decision is 100% confirmed. If it had been a matter of money, I'd have gone to uh, Saudi Arabia or elsewhere. It seemed like a lot of money to me. And a lot of money, something that seems like a lot of money to Messi, is a lot of money. <laughs> when you think about it. The financial terms are unknown. Athletic report on Tuesday that um, uh, Apple, the MLS's TV partner and clothing sponsors, Adidas, each offered Messi profit-sharing agreements to sweeten the deal. Um, what do you make of it, Philippe? I think it's a more long-term investment, perhaps, as far as he's concerned. Um, and also, if I'm not mistaken, um, the deal he signed, though it is for a period of three years, it is a roll-on deal, So, which means that he, can, he could still move on after one year without any prejudice. So we might, we might not have seen uh, Inter Miami might not be the last team that uh, Lionel Messi pays for. Um, yeah, it's about the money. Of course, it's about the money. Uh, what else? I mean, uh, pff, uh, is there anything to add to that, Max? Well, Miami's Miami's nice, isn't it? I mean, it is. It is for you know for fans of MLS. Oh, that's amazing! Nikki, yeah. This is it is great as well, isn't it? Oh, it's it's brilliant. And um, I suppose is it is it awful? There was just a party. It's like, oh, but your niece is going somewhere different. At least they're not all going to to Saudi Arabia. But um, uh, I, I did think to myself, it's, it's going to be an extraordinary experience for a, a, a squad of of mostly sort of not the most famous players, even in America or in Major League Soccer, that he's going to be playing alongside, um, to have him coming in and playing with them. And I do wonder what it's going to feel like on the other side of that for Leo Messi to suddenly not be playing with the sort of teammates he's been used to playing at. Probably a relief. Probably a relief, Nikki, <laughs> after we're going from PSG. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure Joseph Martinez is um, sort of one of the forwards there. Had the uh, goal of the year in MLS last year. He had a, a bicycle kick. So I did wonder if there's going to be some competition now. Hang on, you're coming over to my turf. I can I can still out Delio. Um, DeAndre Yedlin is there. Har Harvey Neville is there. Phil's son. Harvey he's, Neville he's is been there. He's playing yes. for them a bit. Um, I, do I recognise any of the other names? Robbie Robinson rings a bell. Um, Achoa, he Victor Ajoa, yeah, Victor Ajoa. Is that that's not that's not Leonardo Ajoa, is it? It's a different Ajoa. Anyway, our apologies for the rest of the Miami squad. You make a very good point, Nikki. It will be quite interesting for them. Yes, do you think it will be? Um, Paul Merson always says when he went to Walsall, like he just couldn't. He'd play these passes that were great, 
but no one ran for them. So he looked absolutely terrible. <laughs> so maybe it'll be the same. I have this sort of childhood football memory of going to see Woking play in the FA Cup against Coventry. They got to the third round, they played Coventry. And Clive Walker was playing for Woking, which is little, a little yes. step away from Leo Messi. But at the time, it still felt like you were like, oh, there's this sort of one player on the pitch who's just like operating on a slightly different plane of of planning to everyone else and yeah i can definitely uh, i think he scored the winner see, against cambridge I'm so in sorry, the round the, before the i've just compared the ms to clive walker at Woking. i'm sorry no 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 not at all i've, I've compared miami to walsall you know they're different <laughs> holiday locations but but there you go i'd like to say the assure i'm thinking of is not the assure in the inter miami squad he's the mexican <laughs> right. goalkeeper there are many Ashoas. he didn't go to saudi arabia everyone else is uh Joa Kim says, after the Saudis now bought a whole sport, what's the next thing they buy? What if they decide to just buy Ireland? What's Barry thinking? Will Philippe ever watch golf again? Dan says, does FFP exist in Saudi Arabia? So look, Karim Benzema's agreed terms on a three-year deal with uh, uh, the Saudi Arabian champions, Al-Itihad. He'll earn almost 200 million euros a season. They're, mar- they're managed by Nuno Espirito Santo, his gung-ho attacking football uh, is over there. And Golo Kante is joining them too for uh, 100 million euros a year. Um, figures include image rights, commercial deals, and a creative portfolio. So I think we'll just, he'll do it some art while he's there as well. Philippe, I don't imagine you have any opinions about this at all. No, I don't. I don't have any opinion at all. Well, it's part of this uh, incredible um, project that they have uh, kick-started uh, we talked about it um, a, a while ago, and I think I said that uh, just wait and you'll see that what we saw the Qataris do for 2022 was just nothing compared to the, what the Saudis are prepared to do themselves, which is englobing all, all sports, obviously. Um, and I mean, we've seen what happened with golf. And what happened with golf, I think, will have a big impact on what they do with football because it's part of the juggernaut and the way um, the PGA completely caved in basically after this, after saying um, they're horrible, they're, they're the devil and so forth. And then they caved in because a lot of money was put on the table uh, will have only encouraged the Saudis to carry on with what their plans for, for football and which is multi-pronged uh, because you've got on one hand, uh, obviously the uh, uh, getting the players and you start with older players because it's easier but you can expect that in the near future, you will have younger players who go there. And it's not at all, because I've seen it compared to, A, what happened in the US when Pelé, Beckenbauer, Cruyff, Gert Müller went there. No, absolutely nothing to do with it. it this is a state project. And, and the proof of that is the fact that they nationalized, they said they privatized, but in fact, they nationalized uh, the four biggest clubs uh, just a few days ago. So that they are able to put in the money straight from uh, PIF, uh, which is, of course, the owner of Newcastle, who have nothing to do with the Saudi government, as the Premier League uh, has assured us. Uh, so we're going to see uh, uh, younger players come in as well very, very quickly. Um, it should be added that the Saudi League is not a rubbish league at all. Um, it is actually, in Asia, one of the best. And I think if you look at their uh, performances in, in the Asian Champions League, you will see that only Korea... And, and Japan have uh, given more um, Champion League's winner in, in Asia than Saudi Arabia. And it's not uh, something that was born out of nothing just a few years ago. It is something that's been there for a long time. With this caveat, uh, the amount of money they're prepared to, to launch at, at their football project, uh, we're talking about a, a billion dollars uh, per year, 
in terms of salaries. That's rather a lot of money, isn't it? So it will grow and grow and grow. In September 2024, we have got a FIFA Council meeting, which will decide on the next host of the 2030 World Cup. And some people think, no, the Saudis are aiming for 2034. I've always believed it was for 2030. And I can't see anything that's happening at the moment that is proving me that they're not, they will not go for that as well. Everything that they are trying to do, they manage to do it and achieve it. And this is only going to encourage them to go further and further in their project, which is basically domination. As far as I can see, the end game, Miguel Delaney was writing about it, is that they think they want a top four because big leagues have a top four. That's why they bought these four clubs. They'll get three or four really great players. Every other club will get one really good player. So they want a competitive league. But but like, could they... So the aim is to grow this league to the level of what, what Miguel is saying is like Liga, maybe even Serie A, which is sort of mind-blowing. They don't think they can get to the Premier League status. They've already put, a, you know, they've only got already got an awful lot of allies in very powerful places. Don't forget the World Club Cup or the Club World Cup competition as well, which is supposed to be a, an extension of the current format and which in Jenny Infantino's dreams, and which was also in Saudi dreams, would incorporate many more teams and in fact would be a direct competitor to the Champions League uh, in Europe. And it's very clear. Look at what is happening in Africa. They're creating a Super League. Who is going to uh, bankroll the Super League in Africa? Saudi Arabia. I, I promise you, it will be Saudi Arabia. So when what happens is that you de-Westernize and de-Latin Americanize football. And, and so you make it a truly global sport in terms of who has the power, which, it, by the way, if it were other people who were involved, might not be such a bad thing. Uh, let's be absolutely frank about that. But the aim is that in Africa, you will have a top four, top eight teams, which will have genuine financial power, therefore being able to keep the players, but also to bring players back in or, or bring European and, you know, uh, Argentine and Brazilian players in. So these four clubs will be able to compete in a revamped Club World Cup. The Asian uh, clubs, obviously the Saudi clubs will be there to grab the places. So you can, you can see where it's going and you have a Club World Cup. And if the Club World Cup genuinely has the 24 best teams in the world, well, people will watch it and they'll have, they have managed. And this is, I don't know if this is a ridiculous question. If Saudi Arabia didn't publicly execute 81 people in a day and didn't jail a woman for sending tweets and didn't imprison gay people, would this be a problem? Pretty big if, isn't it? Well, it is a big if. I, but but I'm, I'm just wondering, like, is obviously that is a, it is a big if, right? You know, and... and it is a problem uh, for the same reason that people thought the Super League was a problem. If you have hegemony, uh, you don't have any competition anymore. And also you completely, um, I was going to say, bleed the sport from um, what makes it, what made us fall in love with it to start with. I mean, you were talking about those West Ham fans in tears in, in Australia at five o'clock in the morning. Um, this is quite a different uh, kind of football we're talking about, which is purely about entertainment, but also which is linked with a, a political, uh, diplomatic uh, agenda, which is an agenda of domination and hegemony. So, what can we can we do anything about it? I'm not the four of us specifically right now, but but you know, well, we could try. But um, yeah, we 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 can do certainly a few things by because honestly, at the moment, 
Well, the best thing we can do is not watch it and not being interested in it. That's one thing we can do. The other is achieve um, change in our own uh, football institutions and to have actually people who um, have pushed back against this. It's going to be very, very difficult, to be absolutely honest. I mean, I am not optimistic at all, Max. Really not optimistic at all. As to watching golf, I've never watched golf, so I don't have a problem. If if the Saudis are pumping hundreds of millions of pounds into buying a well-established, globally popular sport like football, you would think they might want to pump tens of millions into buying a well-established, globally popular podcast that oh, offers, <laughs> you know, regular, thrice-weekly analysis and acerbic opinions on, on that sport. And that would present quite a dilemma for me anyway, as in what would I spend all the money on? <laughs> <laughs> I've already said this before. Even if I got over 10 million, I was talking to Craig Foster this morning. Obviously, he was just like, I couldn't do it. But I wouldn't be able to look Philippe in the eye, you know. I mean, through my golden <laughs> contact lenses. <laughs> anyway, it's the Champions League final uh, on Saturday night. Uh Nicky, you know, it's great Serie A had three teams in the finals. It, it, it's starting to look like none of them will come home with a trophy. Can you please make the case, however difficult it may be for Inter to win this? Well, they're not the favourites, but I think they can win it. I, I, I think it's really hard to talk about it without sort of waiting for, for people to like jump on you and go, oh, of course City are going to win it. I mean, City are the favourites. Inter have said City are the favourites. Simone Inzaghi says they're the best team in the world, right? There's this acknowledgement of, of reality here, but there's also, despite that, a sort of genuine feeling at Inter that we're capable of it. Like we're capable of, of surprising people. We're capable of playing a one-off game against anyone. There's, there's this real sort of um, foundational belief, I think, at Inter that goes all the way back to last season when they um, got the win at Anfield in the second leg of their game against Liverpool, which didn't mean nothing, right? Like they still went out of the competition. They'd lost the first leg at home 2-0. But I think there's been this sort of sense of of building self-assurance and, and belief of, of the, the capabilities of, within the team ever since then that was then multiplied with the wins of Barcelona. And they've said it a lot. That's very much in Ter's story is no one thought we were going through that group stage. And it's true. If you go back and look at that group stage draw, nobody's got Inter coming out of the group with Bayern Munich and Barcelona. And I know Barcelona weren't at the peak of their powers at that time, but frankly, go and look at the Inter teams that lined up against Bayern Munich and Barcelona. Those were nothing like the teams that have finished the season. There were players in those teams who who aren't part of the picture right now. So so the um that there's sort of been belief building through those moments all sort of multiplied by the fact that yes under Simone Inzaghi they've won every domestic cup competition there is they've won two Supercoppa and and, and the Coppa Italia both times and and there's a, a certain sort of yeah you know in a one-off game of football anything can happen player for player they're worse than City but can Lautaro Martinez score goals against Manchester City of course he can he's he's he scored goals against all sorts of teams could Edin Dzeko or Romelu Lukaku as well of course they can can the rest of the team keep a hold of everything City can throw at them? Can they deal with Erling Haaland? Can Francesco Acerbi, who completely shut out Olivier Giroud in two legs against Milan, do the same thing to, to Haaland? That's a bigger question. But is it possible? Yeah, it's, it's possible. Is that, would that be called doing a Chelsea? Because really, to me, it, it reminds me so much of what happened in 2012. And one of the victims of... 
you know, Roberto Di Matteo, who was also many people thought uh, what he's doing in the league that's rubbish, and you know that that is not the right person for 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 the job. Then uh, beating Pep Guardiola's Barcelona with a team that honestly, man for man, was way inferior. Is there this kind of sense of uh, la, la forza del destino in uh, <laughs> around Inter in Italy? Is there is there that feeling, you know, within the camp, the Inter camp, that oh, it's our year, you know, not, no, nothing can beat us? Yeah, I, I think there definitely is, and I think, of course, you could flip that around and say, well, City feel that as well. I think probably most teams that get to a cup final start to to believe in their own story. I think uh, when when you sort of get to a competition as competitive as as the Champions League, and I know Inter clearly had the softer run through the competition, right? The, the the opponents they faced were were less sort of obviously grand than 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 cities. They didn't beat Bayern Munich. They didn't beat Real Madrid to get here. But but they still have have absolutely within themselves this sense of of a story that's that's heading in one direction. And, and again, it's easy to point to Martinez because he he won the World Cup this year. I know he wasn't good at that World Cup. He had a really bad ankle injury, which I think probably didn't get acknowledged enough in terms of of his performance at the World Cup. But he um. But he's still telling himself, yeah, I won the World Cup this year and now I'm going to win the Champions League. Of course he is. Of course he he thinks that because because professional footballers back themselves and ones who are playing at top clubs back themselves um, to, to that level as well. But I think even some of the less obvious names in in the team, you listen to to Alessandro Bastoni, um, who uh, has had a, a really sort of interesting season at, at, at centre-back or one of the three uh, centre-backs for Inter in that back three um, and who has developed as this ball playing defender someone at the press conference so I did was a bit of a Guardiola player and he said well I think I'm actually more of an Inzaghi player thanks very much but but I, I thought I really enjoyed when he was sort of asked and they've all been asked this question about are you afraid of City and and they've all basically said don't be ridiculous why would you be afraid of a football game but I he, he sort of had this comeback of oh no you know you can be afraid of murderers you can be afraid of, of nasty people why would you be afraid of someone who's my age? Which was clearly like talking about Harland. He was saying he's just he's just someone my age. He's not actually a robot. Now we'll see in the game whether or not he ends up making getting made to look silly. But I think that that self belief is there for Inter. Whether or not, yes, it can get pricked very quickly. We'll see. Well, they've been on great runs here. Do they have lost six times this season? Twice to Brentford, Man United, Liverpool. Southampton in the League Cup and Spurs. So, you know, there's precedent. They've not won every game in their in their history. Carl Walker, um, uh, Pep said he might be injured. He was not good after a disturbance in his back. Disturbance is a funny word. It sounds like, you know, <laughs> late at night. There's some ne'er-do-wells around the back of Carl Walker. Actually, it's not impossible, is it? Um, uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but Carl Walker said, I'm fine. I'm just getting old. I won't be missing the Champions League final for anything. Um, so look, we'll find out and we'll do that pod on Sunday morning. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I look forward to the game and the pod. That'll do for part two. Uh, part three, we'll do any other business. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, uh, on the Man United takeover, Sheikh Justin bin Hamad Al-Tani, um, uh, the bank clerk, has made a fifth bid to buy... Manchester United uh, earlier this week believed to be close to five billion, shy of the Glazer family's six billion valuation, um, according to sources. This will be his final bid, and after Friday, he will no longer engage with the process. Is uh, what he's said. Uh, this bid is for one hundred percent of the club. 
Remember, Jim Ratcliffe's bid uh, includes the Glazers maintaining some share of the club. Anyway, we'll keep you posted as and when. Uh, Simon says, Bellingham to Real Madrid for £85 million is a bit of a bargain at today's prices, isn't it? If he goes on as long as Modric and Crows, it would work out at about £5 million a season. Yeah, they've uh, agreed a deal. does seem good, Baz, doesn't it, for, for Bellingham? Yeah, absolute terrific player. Um, still only a teenager, seems a very well-rounded individual and I assumed it would be a lot more but uh, I'm I'm not privy I can't remember how long's left on his contract or whatever but I I would say even back in the days when 83 million was quite a lot of money um that's still a good we haven't deal. Been, we, we, we haven't been bought by the Saudis yet man. Quite, <laughs> quite a lot Matt says how is Max enjoying being the official Ange Postacoglu correspondent for the world's media this week Yes, I've just done a lot of interest. I started turning up on sort of panel shows in Australia, and then BBC News made me do a Zoom call from an airport where I had to I had to kneel for the perfect height uh, for the Zoom call in the departure lounge at Melbourne. Um, anyway, he's signed a four-year deal, so you know I'm excited about it. I think you kneeling, Max, is quite fitting, <laughs> given how much you. Uh have been extolling the virtues of Ange in recent weeks. Well, yes, I, I bow beneath him. I think he's a wonderful man and uh, he will bring huge success, sixth place and some attacking football for the next five years. Uh, AC Milan have sacked Paolo Maldini, their technical director, uh, after five years in the role. Why? They got they got to the Champions League semi-final on the league the year before. Seems a bit hasty. Yeah, there's, there's sort of been um, tension brewing between Maldini and... and uh, Cardinale, that the, the owner came in uh, sort of relieving Elliot of uh, of their control of the club. Um, pretty much since since that happened, um, I think uh, there's a difference of expectations. I think Maldini definitely sort of was was sold on this idea that Milan could rebuild and and be great again, and and was sort of felt like they were on a path towards doing that. And and perhaps Cardinale and and the new ownership have a a more sort of um, probably sadly realistic vision of how things have shifted in world football that you have to be uh um recognized that Serie A doesn't have the money the Premier League does now and you've got to be sort of looking to make young invest invest in young players and, and sell them on and make that your business model which is part of the picture I think there's also a picture about what happened last summer which of course with that um uh, with things dragging on in the, in the ownership uh, changeover, uh, Milan got a late start on their summer transfer activity, and and there were players that Maldini and Masada were trying to get, including Sven Botman, that didn't happen. And then they did sort of throw a good amount of money at Charles de Castellar, who's not been a success at all. And so their big signing of last summer was a big flop. So there's quite a lot of of sort of stuff underneath it. But I think the big picture is. Um, Maldini has always had these sort of very demanding expectations of 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 what he would like the club to be, and I think fans adore that, understandably. And I think um, Cardinale perhaps thinks that that's not the way to go. There's a relegation playoff. I mean, I so I mean, it used to happen in the in the first division. I remember Chelsea were sort of always in it when they had you know when they, people were just parking their cars at the back of Stamford Bridge. Um, but tell us about that. Has it just been brought in by Serie? Has been going a long time? Uh, yeah, so they, they've had them before. The last one was in 2005. Um, but they, um, they they got rid of them and they were just using head to head records as the first tiebreaker. Since the summer, literally just the summer, they reintroduced it that only in the case of uh, first in the table, so winning the title, or places that would decide relegation, 
they would have a playoff again. And as fate would have it, the very first season after the rules were introduced, Verona and Spezia both finished level on 31 points. In in quite a sort of non-linear way they got there as well, because Verona uh, drew their penultimate game of the season against Empoli, having been winning in the 95th minute, they scored no goal. Then on the last um, round of the season, Spezia were winning away to Roma. Uh, so there was some real seesaw towards the end of it. But yes, we now have a playoff on Sunday. I think it's 7.45 p.m. UK time. One-off game and no extra time, Max. So if it's a draw, penalties. Sega says, how long before the robots take over? AI didn't do a great job on the Subaru song, but Chat GPT has a great Liverpool chant for Alexis McAllister ready. Yeah, um, uh, to the tune of Ecuador by, was that by Sash? Uh, Chat GPT did one. So I mean, the, the problem is, Barry, by the time that, uh, you know, some uh, nation state comes around to buying this, It'll already be done by AI. AI <laughs> Barry. That is, uh, that <laughs> Daniel says, has Philippe listened to the new Cantona? Have you listened to any of his music, Philippe? Yeah, yeah, I have uh, listened to, to one song and uh, it's exactly what I was expecting. Um, it's uh, it's fascinatingly horrible. Is it spoken and, uh, word? Or it, it- it's, uh, it's a kind of a Gainsbourg-like uh, rendition. I mean, the, the delivery is very Gainsbourg-like, but think more of the Gainsbourg of the later years when really his singing voice had gone uh, there there are some notes yeah there there's also a tune little tune that he he sings uh the thing is that with cantona if as long as you keep in mind nothing that he does should be taken seriously it's great if you take it seriously it's more problematic uh, the video is absolutely fantastic uh you can see him holding i mean just like a modern day hamlet like the prince holding the skull by the grave, but the skull <laughs> is the face of Cantona himself. Uh, that gives oh. you an idea of n- not pretentious, uh, of the unpretentiousness no. of the whole thing. Uh, apart from that, oh, it really is, great. it really, you know, it's absolutely horrible, actually. It's really horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Chris says, Can we please hear producer Joel's voice just once, even? I get that it's unusual to hear from producers on a pod. But PJ, as he calls him, very familiar, is ever present and clearly knowledgeable, guiding a member of the cast. And all he does is press record, for goodness sake. Uh, clearly, he's more than a cipher. We want to hear his actual voice. If you want to hear producer Joel, you can buy tickets to the live tour on sale very soon. Uh, we are touring the UK and Ireland in November. Uh, one of the shows, of course, will be streamed worldwide. Still have big plans for our US and Australia tour. At least I have. No one else is trying to get... <laughs> so do I. <laughs> we have, yeah. Um, we'll be playing Riyadh next February. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael says, Hi, Max. Just a quick Wolf from Gladiator's blockbuster video update. Uh, back in the mid-90s, he opened the Harrow branch. Maybe part of his deal was all late fees were waived. And got that sweet staff discount Adam mentioned on the last pod. Anyway, after the rise of Netflix, this blockbuster video turned into Tile King and is now the world buffet that I am yet to frequent. Do keep us posted, Michael, if you do. So, yeah, the uh, who knew the links between Wolf the Gladiator and blockbuster video were so deep. But we will keep... It will soon be a 10-part podcast um, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be involved somehow. Uh, so if there's any more info you have on Wolf and Blockbuster Video, we'd love to hear it. I don't think anyone else would. So, you know, <laughs> do let us know. Well, that'll do for today. Uh, cheers, Baz. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Philippe. Thank you, Max. Uh, we'll be back after the Champions League final. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove with Arif Islam. Our executive producer is Max Sanderson. 
This is The Guardian.